What a, what a great hymn to be singing as we recommission Helen as she heads back to Japan in the next uh, week or so. We're just going to ask her a few questions, and then we're going to uh, sing again after we've spoken with Helen. But this morning's good for us as children, boys and girls, adults as well, just to focus our attention on God's mission across the world. And I'm delighted that uh, Helen has friends and family and OMF supporters here this morning with us, and we're delighted as a congregation to be recommissioning Helen as she heads out to Japan. So just a a couple of questions, Helen. Tell us, firstly, um, if you're happy answering this, how many years have you served with OMF in Japan, and what exactly you do there? Well, the years keep uh, crawling upwards and upwards. This is my 34th year since I first went oh. out, yeah. Good. And what exactly do you do at Japan? Um, well, um, I, I work in support of the missionaries who are there to share God's word uh, with the people. So I, I mostly am involved in supporting families and whatever that takes. A lot of that has to do with educational advice and support and encouragement. It has to do a lot with listening to missionary moms and dads in their journey as well. But I've um, always been involved in church planting and latterly um, just being a supporting member of the church that I was part of, the church planting team, the Lighthouse Church in Saltboro, which was started 16 years ago. It's a good few years, Helen, in Japan, in a different culture, a different setting. It's, it's wonderful that God has, even as we were singing, those sustaining mm. those who go out. You've been home for the last, uh, back in Bloomfield, back in East Belfast for the last year. Mm-hmm. Why have you been back for a year? What, what's the To have what's the purpose? lots of fun. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and have many varieties of scones. Uh-huh. <laughs> and drink many cups of coffee. And, but most of all to connect with friends, to connect with family, to connect with my home church who are my family, and um, to be refreshed in body and spirit and in mind. And, and that has been a major focus, just to prepare myself also to be willing to go back um, to Japan next week. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you head back next week uh, to Japan. T- tell us a little bit about OMF's vision for Japan and for the work over these next couple of years. They have a particular purpose, don't they, and, yeah. and vision that they have um, for Japan. Can you yeah. share a little bit yes. about that? Yes, so um, OMF's vision for Japan is quite simple. It's to reach uh, them with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a life-changing way, specifically that by God's grace we will see a vibrant church impacting every community. And so we want to make disciples for Jesus Christ in a land where there are very, very few still, as you've heard me say many a time, less than 1% Christians. So there's a a vast need uh, for um, the gospel in Japan where the Christians are really a tiny minority um, of the population and where churches are also tiny, 70% of them have got less than 30 members. Um, fortunately Lighthouse Church has just gone above that mark which is something to praise God for and to be encouraged because of your your prayers as well I'm deeply encouraged there's a a sincere lack of men in the church so there's much evangelism and reaching out for men but once again in a Lighthouse Church we are particularly blessed by the number of men in our congregation too and that's something as Bloomfield as you've prayed for the Lighthouse Church you've been part of and you can be encouraged by that as well but there are still many many times and at least eight cities in Japan that have no 
church whatsoever. So there's a vast need for more workers um, to go, not only with OMF, but with other missions. Um, for those of you who follow me on Facebook, there was not with OMF, but there was a tragic story of a young family with three children uh, in America who were set to go to Japan next month, and all of them were killed about three or four weeks ago now in a tragic road accident in the States. They were headed to Japan, and for some reason, the Lord took them to himself. Um, but we need more workers, and OMF has a vision for 200 workers by 2020, and 150 of them we would like to see in uh, full-time church planting work, and the other 50 will be people like me in, in church, because with, without people supporting them, then things seem to go wrong, so we need um, support members, we need people who will come short-term, whether that's for a year, for two years, um, or like James has just done for a month. Um, we need people, and we need friends, uh, what we call friends of the mission, people who are working there because of their job, maybe teaching or banking or whatever, who will come alongside us and be an encouragement and mission as well. So that's our vision uh, for that. And if I, if I can just point out then, um, the map, I have labeled some names. I'm not sure how well you can see them. On top of this 200 by 2020, we would like to see 30 workers in the yellow part of that. Now, I live in Hokkaido, and OMF works in the, in the red bit in Hokkaido, in the yellow bit, which we call the Tohoku region, and in the Kanto region, which is the green, the blue bits underneath it, but the green bit where Tokyo is. Um, and so we're specifically looking for that because there are many, in the yellow bit, there are many, 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 many small towns that are uh, unchurched. And that is the area that was most impacted by the uh, incredible earthquake and uh, um, even more terrible tsunami and the ongoing devastation as a result of the breakdown of the nuclear power plant near Fukushima. Um, and so um, in mid-September, I'm going on a prayer drive from um, Hokkaido, flying down to Sendai and then to Fukushima. It won't be too close to the nuclear power plant, but that's where we're starting. And we're going to pray for God's move, movement of the Holy Spirit in that area, that God would send workers and he would bless existing churches uh, as well too. So that's part of the vision that I'm going back to. Yeah. And Helen, I'm sure you're very aware of this, that you could become very popular over the next uh, couple of years. Uh, Japan, <laughs> Japan holds the Rugby World Cup in 2019 and then the Olympics again in 2020. Mm -hmm. what, a, what, a, what a time to put Japan on the map, but also your home mm -hmm. um, if people were traveling out as well. But before you do that, <laughs> I, my, my friend... <laughs> Can I say something? Somebody yes, keeps asking me, how long are you going back for this time? And I think there's an ulterior motive, motive. behind that. <laughs> My sister, I said three years, and she said, well, Helen, that only takes you to be August 2019, and uh, when's the Rugby World Cup? <laughs> September. Yeah. Look, Helen, it's been a delight yeah. for me, particularly since I've come to Bloomfield, to get to know you over the last mm -hmm. few months. And for the congregation, you've known her for the last number of years. She's grown up in the congregation. And I suppose my last question is really, as Helen goes back uh, next week uh, to Japan, how can we support and pray for you? How can we keep that relevant and real uh, over these next few months, uh, mm -hmm. even with the World Cup and the Olympics <laughs> Well, come and visit. <laughs> don't don't I, say that to them. <laughs> um, but most of all, you can keep on doing what you have been doing and prayerfully supporting me and in, in, in supporting me in whatever ways you can. Um, today, I've left in three places um, at 
over the organ and down in the communion table and at the back a list where if you don't already sign up and have an email copy of uh, my uh, letters when I write them um, uh, please sign up and do that Bloomfield will always get written uh, paper copies but it would be really good if you could get them by email so you can do that um, also um, just write and encourage me sometime um, because it can get pretty lonely and one of the reasons why I struggled so much about going back this time is so many of my peer group are no longer on the field and um, and so I, I appreciate your support from home even more uh, as a result of that too and if you can just pray that the next month uh, where there's many many things to do in getting back in this is my 23rd move in 30 30 years, 34, no, 34, inside 34, this is my 21st or 23rd move, I've lost count. So it's all very stressful, so if you just pray, I can say calm and cool and see the Lord take over. But more than anything else, that I'll be found faithful. Um, I was struck this morning by Bill's prayer and how we started with singing about God's faithfulness to us. And actually, um, over the last week, I've just been looking at a, a song that has meant an awful lot to me. And you could pray that I would be found faithful as well too. I'll just read just a couple of verses of this. We are pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road and those who've gone before us line the way cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find me faithful. And I pray that you'll st stick with me that I may be found faithful in God's service. Great. Thank you. And it's lovely to have you here this morning, Helen. We turn to read the, from the Holy Scriptures. Today is our final study from the letter of James, and we're reading from James chapter 5. You'll find it on page 1216 of the Pew Text, and we read from verse 13. James chapter 5 and verse 13. Hear the word of God. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, 
He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Good morning. Can I invite you to take a pew Bible and turn to page 1216 this morning, James chapter 5, and we're, reading, or we're going to be in, uh, in verses 13 to 20 this morning. So let me give you a moment to do that. Christians will face trials, sufferings, hardships. We are not to think that we are on some higher plane of existence that avoids the trials of life. The Christian is not immune from them, nor is he promised a better course. And as James signs off his letter here in chapter 5, verse 13 in front of you this morning, he's speaking again to the community of faith about how to respond to both trials and also the joys of life. And so he writes in verse 13, do you see it there? Is any of you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. In essence, what he's saying here, if I summarize, is that no matter what, pray and praise. It's a simple principle, isn't it? That we should pray and praise of, under every situation, be it in troublesome or joyful times, this command to pray is found throughout the New Testament. Listen to the following verses. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Or take Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer, be watchful with thanksgiving. And then lastly, 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is the will of God, the purpose of God, that His people would be a people of prayer and a people of praise. When life is difficult, when life is going good. But what does it look like in everyday life? Does it look like any of the following? You're given a good promotion at work or someone else is in your department. Do we praise God for His goodness to yourself and even to the colleague, even if He's beaten you to the promotion? Do we praise God for His goodness? The newborn baby or girl that's born into the family or even the fellowship of the church, do we praise God for that? Test results come back positive. Exams go well. We praise God. Or the simple things of life, of a food and a house to live in. If anyone is cheerful or happy, let him praise God. Let him sing praises to God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. But what about those times of trouble our suffering, how hard it can be, isn't it true, to lift our thoughts beyond our pain, our worries, and speak to God, how hard it is not to be resentful or angry or hard towards God because trials and sufferings have come upon us. James says to us this morning, if any of you are in trouble, pray, come to God, remembering, back in chapter 1, he doesn't find fault, he doesn't point the finger, but instead he gives us wisdom. And maybe the prayer is this morning, Lord, I need your wisdom 
on how to keep my heart pure and soft and not bitter in times of trouble. James says to those facing troubles and trials this morning, pray, speak with your heavenly Father. The point being made in this verse is that no situation, no joy, no trial by which we, by which we cannot speak to God in prayer. There is nothing that occurs by which we cannot be brought to God. No matter what, pray and praise. Simple but hard to enact at times. And then secondly, we come to the elders, prayer and sickness. James then moves on in verse 14. He says, if any of you are sick, James instructs them to call the elders to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Just a couple of, of comments by way of clearing the ground for this. Firstly, the sick person or weak one here appears to be seriously ill. Note how James describes them. They call the elders, presumably because they're so unwell they can't go to the elders themselves, and so the elders have to come to the individual. Secondly, the elders are to pray over them, again, possibly because they confined to bed or so weak they're unable to exert themselves physically. The principle here is that the person who is very unwell or sick is to call the elders to pray for them. This occasion of calling the elders to pray and anoint should be reserved for serious illness and sickness, not because I stumped my toe on the bedroom, on the bed at home, but more for that seriousness. And this verse also teaches us, doesn't it, something about the eldership within the local church setting. James assumes that the local churches have elders in place and that pastoral care and prayer is one of their leadership roles. And I don't know if you know from other parts of Scripture about the role of elders, but this morning I just want to take a moment in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, which spells out what an elder should be. An overseer, as it's called in the ESV, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. Titus goes on and he says some of the same things again. He says, for an overseer is God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright. Later on, he says this, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word of God as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. In the New Testament, we get the idea of what an elder is to be and what he is to do. But two other verses spell this home. Acts 20, it says this, pay careful attention to yourself, elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Peter says, do not do it domineeringly over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The elders of the local church are to care, to look out for, and be examples of godliness in word and deed to the flock. And so if they are, you can see why, can't you? Somebody who is sick will call on the elders to pray for them because they're the praying leaders. I find this immensely challenging for all of us who are either in leadership or in eldership, that we are to be a praying people. How can an elder pray for the sick when they're not a praying person themselves. James instructs the elders, they are to pray over the sick person. 
But do you notice the second half, which sometimes we avoid, is to anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. I have a question with this. Why? Why does this, what does this do for the individual who is sick? There are three possibilities. I'm sure there's more, but I just want to focus on three purposes of anointing with oil this morning. The first is medicinal. Throughout the New Testament, oil was used for medicinal purposes. The best example probably of this is the Samaritan who helped, who was helped by on the road when he was beaten. Luke 10 tells us that they used oil and wine. What for? For medicinal purposes, for healing process. But today, you know, we use oils, don't we? For soothing aching muscles, sports injuries, get deep heat, as it was called years ago. Or in the GA, in hurling terms, we call this magic spray, which was sprayed on individuals, and then they were able to run forever after it. But that's what we use it for, and we use oils today for sports injuries. But I'm not sure if in James 5, that's what it was for, this medicinal. Why would you call the elders to do a medicinal purpose? Might be no harm, but it doesn't make sense that much. Some Christian traditions have a second way of doing it, and that is a sacramental emphasis. They've inferred from these verses in James 5, a sacramental use of the oil for the sick. One Christian tradition have the act of extreme unction, which is applied when a person is very sick or close to death. The anointing by oil takes away sin. That's one example. The Anglican church has also a kind of sacramental element to it as well. Listen to this prayer on healing and for oil. Lord, Holy Father, giver of health and salvation, as your apostles anointed those who were sick and healed them, so continue the ministry of healing in your church. Sanctify this oil that those who are anointed with it may be freed from suffering and distress. And so the oil is sanctified or prayed over for it to do a certain task or purpose. The emphasis comes into play. Over, these emphases have come into play over time in church history and tradition. And it's hard to see their justification from Scripture, and especially James 5 here this morning. But thirdly, could anointing with oil here be symbolic? Could a better reading of what is happening here in James 5 see the anointing of oil by the elders as an act of consecration or dedication of the person to God through the anointing of oil? It's symbolic. In the Old Testament, do you remember when King David was anointed while King Saul was still in his reign? What was poured over his head? Oil, anointing him, setting him apart for God's purpose and task. The Old Testament priests were anointed too. Aaron and his brothers were anointed with oil, set apart for the task, for God's attention. So the elders are to come and pray and anoint the person with oil as a symbolism of dedicating, committing them to God. The oil doesn't have magical power. It doesn't take away illness or sin for that matter. It's a symbolic gesture of setting them apart for God's attention via the means of prayer. And that's where it leads us to. See verse 15? And this leads us to this verse which says, and the prayer of faith offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. The big questions here are, what is the prayer offered in faith and what is promised here in verse 15? Firstly, you've got to understand that all faith is done in prayer, isn't it? In, all prayer is done in faith. We believe God exists by faith. We pray to Him believing He hears our praise of Him, our requests, our petitions, our supplications that we make before Him, all done believing He exists, believing that He can answer. There's a faith element to it all. 
You see, we grasp this verse wrongly if we believe that all we need is a special prayer by the elders, or the elders have special faith, and then healing takes place. No. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on James, says the following concerning the prayer of faith. He says, the faith in which we pray is always faith in God, whose will is supreme and best. And then later on, he says, prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal with that faith itself, a gift of God being present. Alex Mateer in his commentary says this, in the prayer of faith, our faith is not that the promises will be fulfilled just like that. It is faith which rests trustfully in the will of a sovereign, faithful, and loving God. What these Bible teachers and commentators are saying is that faith itself is a gift from God. And when we pray in faith for healing, we're putting our confidence not in how much faith the elders can muster, but in the purpose and the will of God to heal this person. There was a lovely example of this in in Kilkenny Presbyterian, where the elders were called to a young woman who was very unwell for a couple of months, her body very weak, where she couldn't get out of bed. And the elders came and anointed her with oil. A couple of days or weeks later, I can't remember, she came out of her bedroom walking and her strength returned gradually. And it's a lovely testament to who? To God and what he can do when the elders were called to pray and anoint. But how do you know when the prayer of faith is offered? Which elder offered this prayer of faith? You see, there's a pastoral issue here with this passage, because if we take the promise here as a given every time the elders pray and anoint, well, then we're going to have huge fallout. Some will think some are healed, others are not. Did the elders not have enough faith? Was the prayer of faith not mentioned or done? And so we get into very murky water over this passage and the promise that is here. And so the rest of this passage teaches us that the effect of prayer is there. You see the effect of it is healed. It will make the sick person well, meaning here, I will heal the one who's sick from their illness. But we have to be careful with this passage. All prayer is done in faith. And we don't know the mysteries behind the answering of a prayer of faith for someone who's healing. It's not a direct promise. And it is the Lord, not the prayer of faith, who will raise them up. I guess there's much made today in healing ministries of individuals who are elevated or highlighted for the gift of healing and the gift of special faith. Prayer for healing should always be directed to the Lord. And when healing occurs, we praise not the elders or those men and women who pray, but in fact, we stand back and we say, praise God for what he has done according to his will and sovereign good and purposes. But did you notice here there is more going on than just physical healing here? In this passage, James tells us at the end of verse 15, do you see it? If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay? This passage is getting harder and harder as it goes on, isn't it? What James is highlighting here is the possible link between sin and illness. That's why he says, if, if this person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's important to say, isn't it, that all sickness and diseases cannot be traced back to personal sin. 
Our Lord Jesus made that very clear in John 9 when the disciples asked him whether the blind man's parents or the man himself had sinned for him to be born blind. Jesus emphatically says, no, that is not the way to think about this. But we also know that certain things, certain lifestyles, certain choices have the possibility of bringing on illness, don't we? For example, if you drink like a fish, you have the possibility of cirrhosis of, of your liver over time, an illness brought on by your lifestyle choices. Or if you are sexually active with many partners, you have the possibility of a transmitted, sexually transmitted disease from that. And we see here that James is highlighting the fact that if there is sickness brought on by illness, he can be healed too. And here James is saying that the illness of his body will also correspond to the forgiveness of his sins. What a joy and what a gracious God we pray to when he heals according to his good and perfect will, he does so completely, a body restored and a soul forgiven as well. And then James moves on thirdly. To, to this thing of confessing to one another. Do you see it, verse 16? If James raises the possibility of sin being the cause of illness, then it's not surprising then in verse 16, do you see it where he says to these Christians, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Whenever I read these verses, I always get a little worried because it brings to my mind this kind of public confession of sins in front of the whole church scenario, a bit like Calvin might have done in his day in Geneva, where there's no holes barred, outpouring of confession of one's sins in public. And you know what? It'd be extremely unhelpful at times and maybe inappropriate. You don't want to hear all my sins at this moment in time, do you, for confession in front of you? But the wider context of the letter of James is helpful to us here as we consider what it means to confess our sins to one another. Throughout the letter, James has been addressing sins of favoritism, of degrading our brothers and sisters because of certain statuses that they have. The letter has challenged us about the use of the tongue, to praise God on one hand and curse people on the other hand. In chapter 4, James spoke to us about quarreling and fighting to our actions and attitudes. And surely, the confession of sins here in chapter 5, verse 16, is saying to those in the church who have committed those wrongs, go and confess them to your brothers and sisters in Christ and seek reconciliation. This verse is the only verse in the New Testament that commands confession of sins among Christians to one another. And we can't water it down. The command here is to confess sins because there may be those of us here this morning under conviction of sin that they've wronged someone within the fellowship here by the use of our tongue, by favoritism, by quarrels and fights. And James says to us, go and confess it. Confess it to your brothers and sisters in Christ, those sins. And you know what? We're not great at this. This is one of the areas where we struggle to do this. But notice also what God's Word says to us, pray for one another. There is in this phrase the assumption that the brother who is wronged or sister who is wronged will accept the confession and apology of his fellow Christians. And that can be extremely difficult to do to trust again, to allow them in. But James says here to the people on a signing off, confess and pray together so that you will be healed. What a wonderful liberation it is to be able to go and trust the gospel and say, look, I've wronged you. I've, I've said things about you behind your back. 
I'm quarreling and fighting with you, even though you might not even know it. And I want to confess it before you. Let's pray together so that we're healed. And this is what James is requiring. This is what God requires. And the whole section of James is about prayer and its power and effectiveness. And that's why James signs off. Do you see the end of verse 16 saying, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What an encouragement this morning to keep praying because it is powerful and effective. The righteous person here that he mentions is not that they have it all sewn up and and are good in everything they do, but rather it is the one who's been made right with God, and they display that righteousness through their living faith and works. And so as we pray, as people who've been made righteous in Christ, the prayers we pray are powerful and effective. But maybe you feel you're not a good praying person, Maybe you have a deep sense of weakness in prayer, doubts over it, you're up and down in your prayer life and your Christian life. You may even feel feel guilty about prayer. James says to us this morning, prayer is powerful and effective, and he says to us, you only have to look at Elijah. Do you see it there? A person like you and I, meaning he was human. And if you get a chance to look at the life of Elijah in 1 Kings, you'll see Elijah was just like you and I. There were times throughout Kings where he has great faith and commitment to God as he faced King Ahab and and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, but there was also moments where he despaired of what was happening in his life and country. He thought he was the only one left, depressed, we would say today, and he ran it for his life out of fear. I don't know about you, he's just like us, isn't he, in nature, but he prayed earnestly He prayed the rain would stop him for three years it did, and it only began again after he prayed. And this is the man, Elijah, just like you. You see what James is trying to do? He gives us the example of Elijah to motivate and encourage us to pray, to pray on every occasion, to pray for those in the church who are sick, and to pray with those who have wronged us, to pray and praise no matter what. And lastly, and very briefly this morning, James teaches us to look out for one another in verses 19 and 20. Do you see it there? If any of you, again that phrase, if any of you should wander from the truth or be in error, we are to look out for them, seek them out, discuss with them, debate, love them, pray for them. And if they turn back to the truth and see the error of their way, you will save them from death and a multitude of sin. What a beautiful passage of a fellowship of a church that is working to support and encourage all who are within it when they see people wandering from the truth. I wonder is wandering from the truth using our tongue as we want. I wonder is wandering from the truth being in error about favoritism. I wonder is wandering from the truth not confessing our sins to others and praying for one another because we're so embittered and resentful. James is encouraging us as a community of believers here in Bloomfield and in this area of the city to be a praying community because prayer is powerful and effective. We don't often understand the mystery and ultimate workings of prayer, but we do see its effects. Pray and praise in all circumstances. Confess your sins. Pray for one another. Look at the example of Elijah. He's just like you. And look out for one another. And may our praying draw more attention to God who is sovereign, powerful, and wise as he hears and answers the prayers of his people according to his good and perfect will. Let's pray.
Father, this morning we confess that so often when life is going good, we don't pray at all. We don't acknowledge your good hand. We don't acknowledge your generosity and your goodness to us. And Father, when we're in trouble, we try to seek solutions. We try to work around them, try to sort them out in our heads, and we avoid praying and bringing it to you. Father, we pray this morning, help us to be a praying people. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for our lack of dependence on you, we pray. And Father, for our elders, we pray that they would be men and women who love the Lord, who are what the scriptures describe in character, and that they would be praying leaders so that we as a people would call on them to continue their prayer and care and oversight of us, we pray. Lord, we pray for the practical application of this passage. Father, help us to pray and confess our sins to each other for those we've wronged. Lord, help us to pray with others who've wronged us. And Father, in that, Lord, that you will pour the love of Christ into our hearts and lives. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of Elijah, a man who was up and down, who had great faith and then scared and fearful for everything. Lord, we're just like him. And yet, Lord, you're saying to us that prayer is powerful and effective. Just look at the life of Elijah. And Father, for those who are wandering from the truth, Lord, may you bring alongside us brothers and sisters who will remind us of truth and your word and pray for us so that, Lord, we will cover over that multitude of sins. Father, this morning, we thank you for the book of James. Thank you that it is more than words. And we pray that you'll impact us by your spirit, by helping us to apply it to our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's continue in prayer together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word to us that if any of you are in trouble, he should pray. And if anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. Lord, we thank you for Helen. Thank you for the calling you've made on her life to make her a child of God. Thank you for the call on her life to live and serve you in Japan. And we thank you for her. Father God, we thank you for the way you've kept her over these many years, sustaining her, renewing her love and desire for the people of Japan and particularly the families and individuals within the OMF family. Lord, we commit her to your loving care as she returns to Japan over these next week or so. May this time of transition be smooth. May you renew all that she needs in energy and spirit to continue serving you. And Father, we pray for this prayer drive, that that will be a blessing to her as she lifts the people and places before your throne of grace. Lord, we commit the OMF team in Japan to you. We pray for the director, David Ferguson, for the staff who are on home assignment at the moment, for those in language school, and for those who are seeking to reach and disciple uh, many in that country. We thank you for the local church and how it's growing. And we pray for local pastors, that you'll bless them that you'll help them to be faithful and that you'll bless the local church as it reaches the local area, we pray. We pray for the ongoing vision and strategy of OMF to have many more workers and many more witnessing for you there. Lord, you've done a great work over these many years in Japan and we look forward to praising your name and seeing your name honored in these years to come, we pray. 
Father, we pray for those who got exam results this week. We give you thanks for each student and individual, and we pray that you would help them to know what is best for their options going into the future. We thank you for your love for them. We thank you that it's not dependent on how they perform and that you have given them an identity that's not based on exams or results or jobs or courses. Thank you this day for the identity and purpose and value that you give to each of them. And we pray that that will be a blessing to them and their sure foundation. Lord, be with them in these days of choice. Help them to know what is best. And we pray for parents as well, just that they will all be in agreement with that. Lord, bless this time, we pray. And we pray that many of these students, as they head abroad, as they stay local, will be a great witness for you in their local campuses. And that, Lord, you will bless them among their friends at college and in lectures, we pray. Father, we thank you for the gift it is to be able to read. Thank you for the access that we have to so many books and technology and resources today. And Lord, we bless you for all that we have. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity we have tomorrow to have our own holiday Bible club. And we pray for Reuben and the team. We pray for each child as they come in, that they will be loved and cared for well, and that they will know more of you this week. Captivate their young hearts and lives, Lord God. Give them your Holy Spirit, and may many of these kids know the deep, deep love of Jesus this week. We pray for those who are downhearted, for those who are anxious, for those who carry heavy burdens and concerns for friends and family. We bring before you those battling illnesses, facing surgery and treatment. We ask that you would continue your healing power for those who have recovered from operations and ongoing treatment. And Lord, in this moment of quiet, we bring before you those we're very concerned for, those we love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen.